scripture passage this evening is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, can be found in your pew Bible on page 1840. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive who are left to the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, Encourage each other with these words. Let's follow the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 22, page 29, in the back of your Psalter hymnals. We can say the answers together with one voice this evening. How does... The resurrection of the body comfort you. Not only my soul will be taken immediately after this life to Christ and death, but even my very flesh will be comfort you. Even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, so after this life I will have perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no man has ever imagined, a blessedness in which to praise God eternally. Teaching of the Catechism. As I was uh, researching for this sermon, I came across an interesting poem with a name that kind of grabbed my attention. The poem's written by a man named Gerald Manley Hopkins in the 1800s, late 1800s. And the name of the poem was this, that nature is a Heracletian fire and of the comfort of the resurrection. So that's got a bizarre name. What's this about? And as I read it and as I learned more about Gerald's life or Gerard's life, and I learned more about this poem, It really appealed to me, and I felt maybe I could share a little bit with you. 
The poem begins with a description of life as chaos, hardship, difficulty. Almost depicting in the language of the words of this poem a picture of creation, which was so popular at the time that Gerard wrote this, namely that of Darwinian evolution. Darwinian evolution depicts creation as a directionless progression of might makes right, survival of the fittest, chance. It's a very dark, it's a very depressing, it's a very horrible picture of creation, right? And this was a reflection of of Hopkins' own experience in life at the time he wrote this. It was during a season season of depression and darkness in his life. And so his life, he he felt, felt like Darwinian evolution, darkness, chaos, difficulty, hardship. Yet his poem transitions at the end with an abrupt shift as the reality of the resurrection enters into his consciousness. So maybe if you think of that, you understand the name of the poem, that nature is a Heracletian fire. Nature, fire, chaos, that kind of imagery, right? And of the comfort of the resurrection. Listen to what he says at the end of the poem, after he's pictured the chaos and the darkness of creation. Enough! The resurrection, a heart's clarion, away grief's gasping, joyless days, dejection. Across my foundering deck shone a beacon, an eternal beam, flesh fade, and mortal trash fall into the residuary worm, world's wildfire, leave but ash. In a flash, at a trumpet crash, I am, at, I am all at once what Christ is. Since he was what I am, and this jack, joke, poor, pot, shirt, patch, match, word, immortal, diamond, is immortal, diamond. Let me read that last part again, and then I'll probably try to decipher it for you. I had to decipher it. I had to learn what it was about as well. In a flash, at a trumpet crash, I am all at once what Christ is. Since he was what I am. And this jack joke, poor potsherd, patch, matchwood, immortal diamond, is immortal diamond. Hopkins died in 1889, not long after writing this poem, at the young age of 44, after contracting typhoid fever. To this man, the only comfort in this life was the reality of the resurrection which awaits all who have true faith in Jesus Christ. It was his escape from grief, from joyless days and dejection, as he called it. It was a beacon, an eternal beam of light that broke into his darkness. It was the truth that although his flesh would fade, that he would be buried in the ground and eaten by worms, one day at a trumpet crash, as Paul says here, 1 Thessalonians 4, The voice of an archangel with the trumpet call of God, right? 
At a trumpet crash, he would be all at once what Christ is. He would become immortal diamond, everlasting and unchanging. It's powerful to me, and I hope it's powerful to you, as we consider the comfort of the resurrection this evening. We're going through the Apostles' Creed. Today are the last two uh, phrases in the Apostles' Creed, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So let's get into it. Our theme this evening should sound very familiar to you because I want us to see, continue to see, that all of the catechism should really be seen through the importance of Lord's Day 1. So Christ, by His Spirit, comforts us in life and in death. Sounds like Lord's Day 1, doesn't it? Christ, by His Spirit, comforts us in life and in death. The first thing we're going to look at is in life. And what do I mean by how does Christ, by His Spirit, comfort us in life? Well, we're going to look at regeneration and what that means for this. And the second thing we're going to look at is in death. And we're going to talk about the resurrection of the body. So Christ, by His Spirit, comforts us in life and in death. In life, the comfort by His Spirit comes through us being born again. Born again from above. Regeneration. Us having salvation. That is our comfort in this life. And then in death is the, the future hope that we have in the resurrection of the body, right? That the death that we experience now is not eternal death. It's not forever death. It's, it's death which awaits a resurrection of the body. So let's look at point number one. In life. Christ by his spirit comforts us in life. And regeneration. And we're going to do this. A little bit different than we've done it before. We're going to look at answers 57 and 58. But we're going to look at what I like to call answers 57 and 58a. As in the first part, right? If you look at 57 and 58, you'll notice there's a similarity between the first parts of the answers between these things. 57 answer part A says this. Not only my soul will be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head. Stop there. Answer 58, part A, says this. Even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. Stop there. So there's a connection here. And the connection is to the soul. To our experience now as born-again believers, as Regenerated believers as believers who now have salvation. If you remember the responsive reading that we did at the beginning of the service, you will remember the fact that those, uh, those words were, you now have salvation. You now have eternal life, right? It's not a future reality. It's a now reality because 
we have been born again from above, that our spirits have been regenerated, that our inner man, although our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. We have salvation now in this life because our souls have been renewed. Our souls have been saved. So let's look at that first phrase, not only my soul, and try to figure out what that means. Now, when I was preparing for this, I thought of a couple of questions that maybe would come up that have often come up when we discuss these things. What happens to my soul when I die? Where does it go? Am I conscious when I die and my soul leaves my body? Do I sleep in some sort of soul sleep? Do I go to some depository of souls and sitting there in darkness until the second coming of the Lord, etc., etc.? Those are all great questions. They're questions that come up. They're questions that the Catechism and the Word of God answers. And these answers should bring us comfort. What the Catechism tells us is that our soul is taken immediately to Christ. To Christ its head. Soul goes to Christ. It goes into the presence of the Lord. We have some examples of this. The thief on the cross. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. We also have another thing said by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 when he said, uh, we desire to be away from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So for Paul, being away from the body means to be at home with the Lord. Uh, In Philippians chapter 1, Paul said to the church in Philippi, I would rather go to be with Christ, but for your sake, you Philippians, I'm staying in the body. So not only my soul implies that the soul is raised to new life, that the soul has been regenerated, right? Been born again from above. The question then is, is there some sort of divide between body and soul? And what should we understand by this? Some of us have probably just simply assumed this, right? But I want to do a history lesson because I want us to understand that this division between body and soul is actually supernatural. It's unnatural for this reason. Remember back in Genesis 3, God said, Adam and Eve, you can eat from any tree in this garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And he said, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. They ate of it. Did they die? Like, you know, Ananias and Sapphira? Like that? No, they didn't. What happened was a spiritual death, right? And this spiritual death affects us physically because the wages of sin is death. Therefore, the spiritual death that we experienced 
has effect on our bodies. We die. But this curse caused this division between body and soul because of the entrance of sin. Because of the entrance of sin, there now became this division between body and soul, which was not there before. And which will be resolved, fixed, finished in the future reality of the new heavens and the earth, new earth. Because God, in sending his son Jesus Christ to, to accomplish salvation, and then the Spirit being poured out to apply the work of Christ to our souls, has now reversed, begun the reversal of that process. But, but, but now, what, what's the problem now? Now, inwardly, we're born again, right? In the same sense that Adam and Eve died spiritually, we now have been resurrected spiritually, but we still die outwardly. We still die outwardly. That's because right now we experience the work of Christ applied to our souls in regeneration. But in a day to come, we will experience the work of Christ applied to our bodies. And that's why part A of question and answer 58 says, even as I already now, even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. The catechism here is not simply describing emotions or those moments when you have those mountaintop experiences where you have lots of, of fellowship with God and you feel really close to him, although that's part of it. The catechism here is describing a spirit-born reality that happens in the life of the believer. We have to remember that we're in the portion of the catechism on the Holy Spirit's work in our sanctification. What part does the Holy Spirit have in this? The Holy Spirit has caused us to be born again and united us to Christ. This is why our soul in death goes to be with Christ. Our union with Christ by the Holy Spirit is also why our bodies are raised as Christ was. But the beginning of eternal joy we experience now is a spirit-born reality created in us. The beginning of eternal joy is Christ in us. The indwelling Holy Spirit allows us to partake of heaven already, but not yet fully. That's why we call this an already, but not yet reality. Because we already, or as the catechism calls it, even now experience in our hearts the beginning of eternal joy. We do not have the fullness of that. In fact, Lord's Day worship is meant to be a picture of that for us, praising the Father together with the saints, tasting of the Lord's Supper, partaking in the fellowship and the communion of saints. 
It's a small taste. It's a small picture of the future reality that is to come. Even the rest that we are called to do on the Lord's day is a picture of that eternal rest that comes, that awaits us in the future. You see, salvation of the soul is the beginning of eternal life. Eternal life does not begin when we die and go on to be in heaven. Eternal life begins when God saves you by his grace. That is the beginning of eternal life. That is the regeneration of the soul means the comfort by Christ's spirit in this life. Amidst all the struggles that we have with sin. That we continue to fight against the sin that we struggle against in this life. Amidst all the deterioration of our bodies, the aches and the pains and the back and forth to the hospitals and to the doctors and to the suffering that we experience knowing this body is wasting away, our comfort is the work which God has begun in us. He will complete. He will complete. And here's the full picture. The completion of that work is not simply our disembodied souls going up into heaven and playing on harps on a cloud. That's not the full picture. Because as Paul tells us in the word, it's not that we're going to heaven. It's that heaven's coming here. So let's get to that. Let's look at the comfort that we have in death. We're going to talk about the resurrection. Now we're going to look at part B of question and answer 57 and 58. So question and answer 57 says to the, to the question, how does the resurrection of the body comfort you? Not only my soul will be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head, but even my very flesh raised by the power of Christ will be united with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. Even my very Flesh. Now, I know when you hear the word flesh, we often think about the sinful nature, which that's a word that Paul uses to describe that, Sarks. But when it's talking about flesh here in the catechism, it's saying this body, my body, same body. When Christ was resurrected from the dead, did he get a replacement body? No, right? Because he had the scars. He had the wounds. It was the same body. It was his body. It was the body that God had prepared for him that was grown in the, in the womb of Mary, that was born in Bethlehem, that was raised in Nazareth. That body was Christ's resurrected body. And the catechism here is saying, the body that is going to be raised by the power of Christ and united with our already resurrected soul and made like Christ's glorious body is our body. It's this body. 
Now, we can have fun with that because I think it's a mystery. I don't know. Is there some sort of prime year in which we were the healthiest and the fittest and, and looked the best? That's the year that we don't know. It's a mystery, but it's marvelous. It's marvelous because it teaches us something that's really important. It teaches us to avoid the dangers of Gnosticism. We've talked about it before, but I want to talk about it again. Because often in our conversations, even in the church, we can sound like good Gnostics. And that is, everything physical is evil. It's wrong. It's bad. Everything spiritual is good. Even the story of Pilgrim's Progress, which we've been talking about in the morning, is not very good at describing this in the allegory. It has its faults. It has its weaknesses. The allegory sounds like it makes everything spiritualized. But God created our bodies. He created this world. And he said, it was very good. And God intends on redeeming not only our souls, not only our souls, but our bodies. This body, even my very flesh, is raised by the power of Christ, reunited, reunited with my soul, and made like Christ's glorious body. What does this look like? Well, I'll try to give us a tiny picture from the scriptures. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says this. It's like a seed. Now, that's a really bad drawn seed but the question but, but what Paul uses this analogy for is he says what's the resurrection body like well it's so drastically different than the body that we now experience that you know gets old and wrinkly and and uh, uncomfortable and painful and, and sick and ill how can we tell it's the same body well the seed is buried in the ground right and it seems to almost die. But really what's happening is that a tree is growing from the seed. Now here's my question. Is the seed different than the tree? Yes. But organically, they're the same, right? The material is the same. The seed is the tree. The tree is the seed, but a transformation has happened. We could say that the seed is the ugly part, and the tree is the glorious part. No seed wants to stay a seed. They want to be a tree. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, the seed, our bodies, sown, perishable, raised, imperishable. Sown dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. And when Paul says spiritual body, he's not simply saying it's just spiritual. There's a physicality to this. God has said the world he created is good, and he's going to redeem it. He's not abandoning it simply for the spiritual realm. We're going to be made like Christ's glorious body. The resurrection of the soul, regeneration, 
meets the resurrection of the body. What was started on the inside is completed on the outside. What was separated because of sin, that is soul and body, is now joined together again as one. Now that sin has been dealt with once and for all, and for all eternity, we will no longer be in the presence of sin. Sin will be eradicated. Death will be eradicated. We will, in our unified bodies, worship God for all eternity. And that's why in answer part B of 58, it says, so after this life. So after this life. How does the article concerning life everlasting comfort you? Answer, even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, so after this life, I will have perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, no ear heard, no man ever imagined, a blessedness in which to praise God eternally. What is the purpose of the regeneration of the soul and the resurrection of the body? It is that we may have an eternity in which to praise God. This salvation that we have in this life will transfer into perfect blessedness. But what's the character of this praise? I know we've probably all heard those lovely caricatures of heaven. Heaven is like one long, never-ending church service. And of course, that's never a positive characteristic or positive description of that, right? It's always kind of like, oh, what a drag. Can't wait to get to heaven. I hope we have lots of Wilhelmina mints, right? But that's not what this perfect blessedness in which to praise God eternally is, I think. It's not simply an eternal worship service, but it's an eternal living of physical lives in the new heavens and the new earth in which we praise God because everything we put our hands to in the new heavens and the new earth is done to the glory of God. Do you think we won't work in heaven? Now we won't need doctors anymore or lawyers or pastors. But we will be without sin and be able to perfectly obey God. Perfect obedience to the Lord is worship, is praising God eternally. And to me, I think when I think of that future reality, that is what excites me the most. That I never, ever again will have to look over my shoulder and fear that I may fall and stumble and sin. Fear that I may do something that would dishonor my Lord. But I will always praise him and worship him perfectly without sin and in a body that is fitted for eternity. Paul, right into the Thessalonians, he wasn't able to spend much time at the church at Thessalonica. He taught all that he believed he needed to teach the important doctrines, and then he went on down the road because he was chased. He was being chased because of the preaching that he was doing to the gospel. And here in this church, they experienced something that was very natural. 
They experience loved ones dying. That's what it means when he says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. Fall asleep is a word, a description used to describe death in those days. Fall asleep. They've fallen asleep. He says, Or did we, we did not want you to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. That is, that when Christ comes again, he will come with all the saints who have died before us. And in fact, Paul even goes on to say, that maybe some of us wished we were alive when Christ returns, but in Paul's eyes, he thinks those who have died before us have a bit of an advantage. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Christ's return is going to be public. Everyone will know. It will not be in secret. All will know that Christ has come back so that all who believe in Jesus Christ will not be put to shame. And those who have died will rise first. Those who have died and gone before us, their bodies will be raised first. After that, we who are still alive and are left, and Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 15, the twinkling of an eye. It's like our bodies will be transformed, right? After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with the Lord forever. Why was it that I chose this passage? Because it fits so Perfectly with Lord's Day 22, which is focusing on the comfort of the resurrection, the comfort of the life everlasting. Paul is writing to these believers who are broken, concerned about the loved ones they've lost, wondering what has happened to them and what will happen to us. So these words that he wrote to them were not meant to be something that was to remind them of the fiery judgment to come, but of the comfort they have. And I know that because in verse 18 he says, therefore, encourage each other. Comfort each other with these words. People of God, the comfort that we have in this life is because God has given us salvation comfort we have in death is because God has given us salvation in his son Jesus Christ encourage one another with these words may you all know the great and wonderful comfort that we have in life and in death because the work which God has begun in us through his son Jesus Christ by the spirit he will complete the salvation we've experienced in our souls, we shall also experience 
in our bodies. Amen. Let's praise the Lord. Father God, we thank you for this time of looking to your word. We ask that you would give us all strength and encouragement by knowing that we have hope. We do not grieve like the rest of men. That we wait for the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That we know, although we've experienced in our heart the beginnings of this eternal joy, that we await for the consummation of your kingdom and the day in which all sin and sickness will be eradicated. That we may see with our own eyes, hear with our own ears, what you have prepared for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.